Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to The Impact Code, where we take deep dives into the stories and journeys of impact in the lives of our guests. I'm your host, Brett Hollenbeck, and today we have a very special guest. Today's guest is Rick Huffines. Rick joined the Tennessee River Gorge Trust on January 7th, 2013, after retiring from a 26-year career of public service with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where he has worked throughout the Southeast in five different states in various capacities. Most recently, Rick served as the Deputy Regional Chief of the National Wildlife Refuge System. Rick spent his youth in Old Hickory, Tennessee, roaming the banks of the Cumberland River, where he was inspired at a young age to follow his passion for conservation. And we'll hear a lot more about that today. He attended Middle Tennessee State University and graduated in 1986 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Plant and Soil Science with an emphasis on wildlife management. I'm excited to share this conversation with Rick with you today, but before we do that, I want to take one brief moment and talk to you about Tower Community Bank. Today's podcast is brought to you completely free of charge by Tower Community Bank. Tower pays for everything about this podcast. Tower pays for the hosting, the equipment, the marketing, and everything else related to the impact code. Why? Because Tower's mission is to make our communities better places to live, work, and raise a family. And we see this podcast as a way to expand our community to new physical locations and to new people. So if you're listening to this right now, you're a part of our community. And we see this podcast as a way to elevate people's stories of mission, of impact throughout the world, and share the great things that they're doing. If you enjoyed today's podcast, a great way to support us and make sure that we can keep bringing you great content free of charge is by heading over to towercommunitybank.com. That's www.towercommunitybank.com and checking us out today. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Rick Huffines. Rick, good morning and welcome to the Impact Code. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. I know Barry, our president, is a huge supporter of the Tennessee River Gorge Trust. And when we first started talking a few weeks ago, we we started this podcast initially and we had some tech issues. And so we're sort of in take two this time. I was really fascinated by a couple of things. And I think the first thing that makes sense to talk about for people is what is the Tennessee River Gorge yeah. Trust and, and why do you all exist? Right. Yeah, that's a good place to start. The Tennessee River Gorge Trust is uh, a grassroots organization that was established back in 1981. Um, there was a, a, a lady in general that was sort of spearheading it. Uh, Adele Hampton was her name. Uh, she had grown up on Williams Island, I believe, um, back in the 30s and 40s, and um, she lived up on the the brow in the gorge and could see down into it and saw that it was changing rapidly back in the mm. the, uh, the 80s and said, we need to do something about this. Yeah. And, uh, she got a bunch of folks together, uh, again, kind of a grassroots effort. They met at her house. I think the date was November the 11th, and uh, they went from there uh, to to set out. I, I would say it's important to say that it wasn't to stop development. I think that she and the rest of them and, and even us today 
um, know that people need to exist in that place as well because they're yeah. part of the, the whole ecosystem as human beings. But it was to make sure that we protected certain places and, and kept those special and dear to the rest of the community. Uh, and I feel like we've done a great job of that over the last 42 years and continuing. Yeah. And, and what types of places are you preserving? So what, how do you know that a place is, I guess, worth preserving? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, some of it comes down to economics okay. uh, because the, you know, when you're, when you're on a river or you're on a, you're near water, the value can become so excessive that you can't, even though it might be something incredibly important, it just becomes too economically difficult to set that piece of property aside. And yeah. that is the most valuable property is what's down by the river. Fortunately, we have protected a lot of the stuff that's down by the water. Yeah. Um, and I think when you ask what, leads you to protect one place over another. Uh, really, it looks at a couple of different things. One, does it provide some sort of special habitat um, or some sort of connectivity to another larger piece of property that would mm. allow uh, wildlife and things to flow better uh, from a, a standpoint of um, the ability to move if they need to? Um, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, like certain things like uh, we, we bought a piece of property about – 18 months, two years ago, that has two mountain bogs on it. Mm. Uh, and those mountain bogs are incredibly rare. They're only, they equate to about an acre a piece. So if you think about that, it's 27,000 acres in the gorge. That's less than one one hundredth of 1% of, wow. of the habitat. But yet the, the biodiversity in those two bogs, that two acres is magnitudes greater than any other acre in the gorge. I mean, just magnitudes greater. That's incredible. So when you, when you bought that property, were you aware that the bogs were there or is this something that you buy the property, you start to sort of analyze it and then you sort of begin to understand how to protect it and how to interact with it? And that's a good question as well, uh, because you're right. Sometimes you know what you're going after and you know it has some special feature that you're interested in. And then sometimes you're looking at a piece of property and you discover something special about it. And that was the case with this one. The landowner um, contacted us and said, uh, we'd like to work with you to see if we could sell this property to you. And I said, well, let me come take a look at it. And when I went up, it was uh, it's up on top of Etna Mountain on the mm-hmm. above Raccoon Mountain. Uh, well, uh, above Raccoon Caverns, I said that wrong. Sure. And um, it was a place I hadn't been before and climbed up the mountain, uh, got up on top. And while I was walking along the plateau area, I saw it sort of dipping down in front of me, but then coming back up again on the other side, which meant that it was either a sinkhole, a large sinkhole, um, some sort of um, bog or uh, it could have been an entrance to a cave because I knew it was above the cave. Yeah. And turned out it was a bog. Uh, and wow. there were two of them up there that we did not know about. That's uh, wild. Just incredible places. Just beautiful, yeah. um, peaceful, gorgeous, beautiful places that um, I wish the public could see it more often, but it's so difficult to get to. It's very hard to see and very hard to find. Yeah. We do the best we can through photographs and things like that. And, we take a few special trips out there once a year to show people the place. Yeah. And it seems like when you are, 
you may be the first person in a while to be on that particular area of that property, correct? Sometimes that's right. So so how are you navigating? How do you know where you're going in terms of, (laughs) and this may be more of just an outdoorsman question or, but when you're taking a property of, let's say it's 500 acres, Mm -hmm. like how are you deciding where is valuable to sort of explore? in that property or just taking your best guess? It's just exploring untrammeled. I mean, that's the way I do it. I just go and uh, I look for things. I listen for things. It might be birds that I'm listening to that draw me to an area. Um, It might be water that I hear rushing that draws me to it. Water will always draw me okay? uh, because that's usually carving a feature. It's leading somewhere and water's always attracting other wildlife. Uh, but looking for water is one of the key things I look for, listening mm-hmm. for water. Um, you know, just looking at the topography of the land, how it lays, that could lead you to certain places. I always like to go to um, any sort of cliff community that I see. Those are usually have some rare yeah. features on them as well. And I like to um, look in areas that are, uh, cavernous, you know, uh, cave and karst areas, uh, as well as, um, I like dark hollows, Mm -hmm. the hollows that are sort of shaded deep and straight up and down narrow hollows. Those will be more wet anywhere. You got that moisture, you'll have more life and more diversity. So yeah. Yeah. When did your love for everything outdoors start? Man, I'm almost as back as far as I can remember. I think, I think the first time you and I talked, I was talking about, was maybe five years old and noticing birds differently, uh, seeing a pair of turned out to be scarlet tanagers in my yard, the back, back, it's a back fence row at the house with, um, uh, some hackberry trees in it. And, uh, asking my mother, what is that? And her saying, I don't know, but we'll find out. And we went and, uh, got us a book at the library and, uh, uh, started, I couldn't even read. I remember that, but, yeah. uh, having, looking at the pictures and us sorting through that and figuring out what those birds were and then realizing that they're not here during the winter. They come for the summer to raise a brood and then go back to central and South America. It was wow. now, like, far back as that. I can remember just always wanting to be outside. I'm, I'm what you call a reducer. Uh, you know, I want to <laughs> understand it more, Yeah, you know, yeah. um, I go, uh, there was um, an essay I, I read years ago by E.O. Wilson called Consilience in the Unity of Knowledge. And he said in that uh, essay, the love of a complexity without reductionism makes art and the love of a complexity with reductionism makes science. That's uh, when I realized I was a reducer. Yeah. I wanted to reduce it. I wanted to understand it more. And the beauty in that statement is that means we all love it for the same reason. It's the art. That's the, right. art the art's what draws us in, the beauty of it all. Mm-hmm. And, the, and as a conservationist, that also tells me I don't have enemies. I got people I need to communicate with because we all yeah. love it. It doesn't yeah. matter what your, your usage is out there in place itself, whether you're a consumptive user like a hunter or a fisherman um, or you're a bird watcher or a botanist, you still love it for the same reason, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely something that brings people together and it sort of levels the playing field because there are, even though people are coming to the outdoors and coming to these lands for different reasons, you're right. They're all pulling something that is equivalently valuable to them Yeah. in the interaction with the land, right? which is really cool. 
Yeah, it is. And that's what I'm saying. It, it, I, I say this to students when I'm lecturing at colleges and things like that, is that you don't have an enemy out there. Don't think that you're, you're as a conservationist, you're gearing up for some sort of a battle. Mm. You don't have that. You know, put your pistols back in their holsters and start communicating with people because what you'll find, whether you work at a cement plant or you work as a, a, a repairman at an auto shop or you're a banker mm-hmm. at Tower Community Bank, you're still part of that that first part, no matter what, where you love it for the art. Yeah. And it's it's finding those connections through conversations like we're having right now that I begin to understand what you love about it and then find ways to connect you to what we do that you love about it. And then you gain the support that you need to maintain yourself as a conservation organization into the future. And that's how we did that here with this bank was through Barry Allen yeah. uh, and his support uh, and his love for the outdoors and his love of the Tennessee River Gorge and connecting with him and having him on our board, uh, which led me to you to sit right here today. Yeah. And it, it is fascinating to me that more people don't take this approach, that more people aren't yeah. taking the approach of building relationships and trying to understand how people are using the land, how people are enjoying the yeah. land. What what can we do then to provide access in a safe way for the land, for the people enjoying the land. Like all of those things can only happen through conversation and through relationships. And when it feels like there are sides against each other, you lose the possibility to create those situations that are when for both the people enjoying the land and the land Mm -hmm. and the animals and all of the wildlife that is there to thrive. Right. And I I think when you have those conversations, you build those relationships with people. You, as we were saying a second ago, you find where their passions are. And it goes back to what you just mentioned was access. I'm the reducer. I'm the guy that has to get out there and understand the health of the overall thing. My responsibility is to make sure it's healthy so that you can enjoy it. And then it also means I have to provide access so that you can enjoy it through your passions um, that are not, I guess, opposing to our mission and purpose of protecting it. Yeah, It's finding the right way to build a, a hiking trail. It's finding the right way to build a boat ramp and where to build that boat ramp yeah. to give access to the water. It's the right way to build a mountain bike trail so that you're not destroying the wildflower or the wild, um, the large flowered skull cap. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's I think doing that, it those ways to make sure that you're protecting what it is that you're out there protecting, but providing that access at the same time. So how did you find your way to, to this role? And I know that there's a lot that's happened between five years old, which we just yeah. talked about and, and where yeah. you are now, there's a lot of career that has happened there, but let's talk about kind of going into your teenage years. Did you know that you wanted to go into something in sort of the forestry? Um, and how would you describe sort of what you do? Would you describe yeah. it as forestry? Would you describe it as um, something else? Like how would you describe the sort of, genre or the sort of industry of your role my role is as a conservationist conservationist it's a little bit different than a forestry forestry is involved in the aspect of conserving land um i i do 
I'm a field ornithologist some days. I'm a forester some days. Yeah. Uh, I'm a businessman some days. It, it varies greatly in what I do in this role. But I think going backwards from beyond that time at five years old was just continuing on this journey of learning more, reducing it, understanding what the value of certain things are and why they're there, uh, which led me to, I think it was probably junior high school that I learned that there was a job called a wildlife biologist and Mm -hmm. then writing a paper on that for a teacher in in a class assignment and thinking, oh, so I can do this and actually make a living doing this. And I have, and I worked for, I went to school at Middle Tennessee State, um, got a specialty degree there um, that, that focused on wildlife biology. It was plant and soil science, but the focus was on wildlife management rather not biology but management and um then went to work for the u.s fish and wildlife service did that for 27 years and i worked started out in law enforcement then worked my way into refuge management and then worked my way into you know senior level job I, when i retired i was the deputy regional director uh for um um the national wildlife refuge system yeah um and um i Retired and came here to the Tennessee River Gorge Trust 10 years ago and have been doing it, working in the nonprofit sector for the last 10 years. Uh, so I guess I've been at it 37 years now. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting to me. A lot of people have these. So when you're in junior high, you're starting to think about what yeah. life might be like and mm-hmm. the things that you enjoy and how to put those, how to marry those two things together, the yeah. things that you enjoy and what you could make a living doing. And it sounds like you, you found something pretty early on. And I think for my story was a little different where I had something that I enjoyed and then I sort of went away from it and I sort of ended up coming back full circle yeah. later in life. But right. it is interesting to me that you had found that really early and yeah. that did you, were there moments in the journey where you wondered if you had made the right choice going into that or has it felt the whole way through like this is this is the thing this is what i was made to do yeah it's always been that i think the only doubt hit me was can i find a job it's hard to get into the field um why is that there just aren't that many jobs yeah there, there are jobs because i don't want anybody to hear this that's thinking about this and think oh well i don't want to do that because there's no jobs sure yeah there yeah. are jobs yeah. it what I would say to a person who was thinking about going into this line of work is the first thing you have to do is set in your mind that I'm probably not going to work right here where I grew up, where, mm. where is home to me. Yeah. Um, you're going to have to move. You're going to have to go somewhere. You're going to have to take the job far away or in an area that you're just not that interested in to get your foot on the cliff so that you can climb it. That's yeah. the way I look at it. And I've moved a lot. I've, I've worked all over. I've lived in Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Florida, um, and then done lots of special assignments all over the place. Not permanent assignments, sure. special assignments. But yeah, there, you can get a job. You can make a good living. You can make a very good uh, salary doing this work. But you've got to be flexible and ready to move and experience new things Mm -hmm. uh, or otherwise it's going to be a little bit slower of a process for you. Yeah. So as you're getting, uh, you said, is was the focus of your degree, you said wildlife management. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So what is wildlife management and why is that important? Yeah. All right. So if you're in charge or you've been entrusted to take care of a place like the Tennessee River Gorge, which I have been, I'm the executive director of the, of the organization. So the community depends on me and my experience and my knowledge to make sure that what we hold on their behalf is healthy. Yeah. And so when you say wildlife management, what we try to do is look at what I would call indicator species and birds are a key indicator species. And we study the birds carefully because if the right kinds and numbers and breeding pairs of birds are in a forest, it tells me that forest is healthy. Interesting. And then if the forest is healthy, that means most everything that is in that forest is healthy as well. It doesn't mean everything is, but most of the time. So we do a lot of work looking at birds and what kinds of breeding pairs of birds that we have during the spring and the summer. We look at, are they uh, raising broods? Are those broods healthy in the fall when they're Mm -hmm. getting ready to make their migration back to Central and South America? Do they have the fat reserves they need to make that long trip? Uh, And if they don't, why? And then we have to look at full life cycle stuff as well. Could there be a problem on the migration route? Could there be a problem in Central or South America? It may not be that we've got a problem in our forest, but it may be that we have a problem in our forest if we don't have the right kinds of birds there. And that's one of the reasons that we study. Because a lot of people say, well, why are you studying the birds? That's why. Yeah. And if, if if the right kinds of birds are in our forest, then that means our wild turkey are healthy, our white-tailed deer are healthy, the black bear that are in the gorge are healthy, which, by the way, we do have them. Yeah. We don't have a lot, but we do have black bears in the gorge. Um, all the animals that are associated with that forest are healthy from that perspective. That, that's so interesting to me. And because there has been, I'd say in the last, and you, you could speak to this, I'm sure significantly more than me in the last 100, 150 years, the, uh, I'd say the biodiversity has, has dropped a little bit, right? There yeah. were, there were animals that existed that now are no longer a part of the food chain and now are no apart, are not a part of the entire sort yeah. of habitat. How do, how does that affect when, animals that did exist in, in that area now are no longer there. You know, how does that affect an area? It does. It's everything is connected in that forest. You know, if for instance, we had um, something happened to the chipmunks, Mm -hmm. I'm just making that up. Something just drastic happened to the chipmunks and they all got wiped out. Some sort of disease comes in. Well, then there's lots of things that start to suffer because that there's a big cascading effect that happens because they're a food source for all kinds of other animals out there. It would affect your raptors. It would affect your rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. It would affect all kinds of coyotes, bobcats, Mm -hmm. foxes, Mm -hmm. all of those things. So yeah, it, 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 there are things that disappear and there are cascading effects that happen because of it. But I also find when I'm out there that there are also, I guess, latent adaptive abilities that mm-hmm. animals and, and plants have that we're not aware of. And that's the beauty of science that, yeah. that reducing never stops. It's understanding things that you don't know. And you look at something and you say, well, why is this here growing next to this or why is this animal here when it should be over there? Mm -hmm. And it has to do with their ability to adapt to things that change. So it's not always climate change is not always a bad thing, Mm -hmm. 
but it's not always a good thing either. Sure. And there are abilities for things to adapt to some of these changes that are happening, but then there are things that they can't adapt to. And then, then there are those cascading effects that come from those kinds of things. That's so interesting. So before we hit record, you were telling me about in the bogs that, that yeah. you discovered, you had found like a, a very specific type of frog yeah. that's really unusual. Can you, yeah. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. We found the barking tree frog and it sounds like a coon hound when, yeah. it's, when it's out there. It's doing burp, burp, burp. It sounds like a coon hound off in the distance. So it's gotten its name barking tree frog. Um, and it, it, we found that in the bog and it's not a, a frog that is common or hardly ever noted in this part of Tennessee. Mm. They are found in the extreme Western part of Tennessee mm-hmm. um, and down the Mississippi um, plains down through the, to the Gulf and along the, the coastal areas. Um, but it's not a common frog here, but it's here. Why? I don't know. And I guess we'll keep looking into that. Yeah. What is it that, that makes these bogs, which are so rare in the first place, which means, I don't know where these frogs would go outside there. They just right. don't have the habitat. Right. Yeah. That's They're very specific. It's a one acre habitat. And in there, these frogs are. Yeah. Why? I don't know. But yeah. uh, th- those are questions that we want to start answering and try to look into how did they get here? Why are they here? Uh, are they remnants from the past mm-hmm. that have just survived over the millennia inside mm-hmm. these little bogs up on the mountain? Do they move around uh, with the, the ephemeral streams that mm-hmm. come and go? And go to other. There are areas in the in the gorge that where it sort of terraces out. The gorge is not just a straight wall straight down in the sure, river. So there's little sure. terraces, and there's water that seeps out from those. So it keeps these wet areas that are sort of um, seasonal uh, wetlands, seasonal bogs. I guess you'd call them mm-hmm. ephemeral stuff. Uh, and maybe they move around and go to those places and come back here. I don't know uh, to these bogs, but. Uh, I do know I did learn something from one of my colleagues who was doing a little reading on them that they're only found in fishless ponds. Really? Yeah. And these, these bogs don't have fish in them. There's no fish in them. Wow. And that's one of the things I I didn't know that, but he told me that day before yesterday, he said, did you know they're found only in fishless ponds? So um, they can't move to the river because Mm -hmm. there's fish in the river. Right. And any streams that have fish, they wouldn't use those either. So probably got something to do with reproduction yeah that, yeah that's fascinating so when when you find something like this and you make a discovery that's really interesting i'm sure first of all i'm sure you get very excited oh to, yeah 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 uh, so what was what was the reaction when you first started hearing them and like how did you go about like actually tracking them down yeah. did you know it right away that that's what it was well it was last fall we were up there doing a preliminary survey of the plants and i was up there with a guy from tennessee department of environment and conservation and I heard the the frog call once mm-hmm. and I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, did you hear that? He said, I did hear that because I know what they sound like. Sound yeah. like a coon hound. Yeah. And he said, I did hear that. And I said, that's barking tree frog. He said, that's right. That's a barking tree frog. Well, we went over and looked. We didn't see it. Yeah. We looked around, didn't find it. We left, uh, went back over to the other side of the pond, waited, heard it one more time, but never heard it again. We were up there most of the day, but heard it bark twice. Oh, wow. And uh, so when we were back, we started on Monday doing this real detailed botanical survey because we think we're going to be able to describe this as a completely new undescribed habitat. These bogs aren't described anywhere in any textbook. They're very different. They don't look like a normal bog. And when I say bog, we're talking in most people that don't understand the terminology. 
they're thinking like a swamp or something. And that's the best way to describe it. Um, And we started looking and started seeing them this time of year. This was, that was in the fall and the bog was real dry. Yeah. They may have been down in the mud. I have no Mm -hmm. idea. Um, but we found, uh, I would say four the first day and maybe eight or nine the second day. Wow. And they found more in the second bog yesterday. I wasn't up there with them. Yeah. So it's kind of neat to see them. Yeah. Yeah. And then how, so how do you start tracking down things like in researching, what is the process like to understand how they got here or things like, yeah. do, do they migrate? Like, how do you go What is the process like to start to understand some of those things? Is it observing? Is it reading? Is it, uh, is it both? I mean, yeah. how, how do you even start something like that? It's finding specialists that are herpetologists okay. that, that can help us understand that. I'm not a specialist when sure. it comes to that. I'm a generalist. Yeah. I mean, I know what a lot of frogs, different frogs sound like, Sure, but I don't know their full life cycles and I don't know their, uh, natural history necessarily. Uh, and we will be doing that working with TDEC and some other folks to start trying to figure some of those questions out and understand that. Yeah. Because it is a mystery to me. I mean, I yeah. see stuff up there in the bar, I mean, in the, the gorge all the time that are mysteries to me. And I think that doesn't fit the textbook, which is cool. That's what's cool about the place. That is, it's such an interesting and in my mind, special place that yeah. I, you know, I just come across I've been in the area and in this role with tower for a little over a year, year and a few months. And yeah. I hadn't spent much time down here in sort of the Sequatchie area, the, yeah. the river gorge, like the, there wasn't much time that I had spent other than just driving through. Yeah. And there is so much beauty here and oh, so much that's hard to believe that it's in this part of the world. Like when yeah. you start to get out and like really spend time there, it's really a treasure. So to be able to preserve that and, yeah provide safe access to it and is, is really a gift. And it's something that in my mind is, is not only important, but it seems, seems like a unique project that we have here that is really cool to see you all taking on. It is. I would like to see more done in the Sequatchie Valley. You you talked about that, the Sequatchie Valley that comes right here to Jasper um, is one of the most incredible features in the state of Tennessee, in my opinion, and very few people know about it. I mean, exactly. it's over a hundred miles long. Yeah. Just take a drive through it. I mean, I would recommend that to anybody listening yeah. to this podcast, get yourself in a vehicle and set yourself up to take a drive from Pikeville to Jasper Yeah, and drive through the Valley yeah. and just take some side roads, go and look at the river, just look at the beautiful farmland, the beautiful scenery. Uh, and then while you're there, take that second trip or that side trip down Highway 41 through the Tennessee River yeah. Gorge to Chattanooga, yeah. which is, you know, those those two features to me are just phenomenal. I told you I worked in the National Wildlife Refuge System for 27 years, and I've, I've been to some of the most incredible places, I think, in the United States through mm-hmm. special assignments and work in this holds up to all of them. And in some cases, in most cases is better than most places I've been international wildlife refuge system. It's that special. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think a lot of other people do too. I'm not sure. Do you know, um, Steven Alvarez at all? Yeah. I had him on the podcast not that long ago and and he's the same way, you know, he's been all over the world, literally to some of the most beautiful places Mm -hmm. that he's photographed, some of the highest peaks, some of the lowest caves. And, 
And he's still, he's like, there's nothing like this area. There's not. And I, I can attest to that as well. I've not been the places he's been, but I can attest to it from where I have been in the United States. And it, it there's very few places that would compare to these two, the Sequatchie Valley and the Tennessee River Gorge. Yeah. So what types of, uh, as far as the preservation work and the conservation work that you're doing right now, what types of challenges are you facing right now with the Tennessee River Gorge Trust? Um, I think... You know, access is a key thing, and it's trying to make sure that we do provide the right kinds of access and at the same time protect the things that we're supposed to be protecting because Mm -hmm. we do want to give people the access. It's finding representations of the whole that we can take you to rather than give you access to the whole. We can't do that, but we can give you representations to it. Um, I think. Climate is one thing we have to still stay concerned about, and especially with the cliff communities mm-hmm. uh, and the rarity, the rarities that that exist on the cliff communities. Yep. Um, also, access on the cliff communities, making sure that that's not uh, causing harm to the to the communities that that do live on the cliffs. And I will say that we're in very good uh, close contact with Southeast Climate Coalition and other groups to make sure that those things are not being damaged and harmed by the access. That's good. Uh, Same with the biking and all that kind of stuff, the mountain biking. Yeah. Um, And I'd say, um, you know, long-term wise is making sure that we're funded. And I would say, Big thumbs up to our board of directors and past boards of directors for making sure that this organization is properly funded in the here and now and Mm -hmm. making sure that we are in the future as well. Um, So those will be the key things, I think, is making sure we, we, we continue to protect it but provide the access and then making sure that we've got adequate sources of funding to keep ourselves going. Yeah, I think I think those are really hot topics. And as you're, so as you're doing things like raising funds, as you're doing things like providing access, how are you, do you have a way right now to sort of share those stories with people in the area to, to so that they know like things like yeah. the, the barking tree frogs, yeah. you know, that those were discovered here. We didn't yeah. think the bogs, like we didn't, yeah. we haven't seen bogs like this in this mm-hmm. area before. How do you have a way right now, a newsletter or, um, social or some way that these stories are starting to be shared or is that, um, is it, how does that work? I guess. Yeah, we, we do have a newsletter. We put that out at least twice a year, sometimes three to four times, but it's usually more like twice a year. Yeah. Um, and it's digital and we, you can contact us through our website, which is trgt.org, O-R-G for organization. Um, you can reach out to that and all of our social media, like Facebook, Instagram. I don't know if we do anything on Twitter, but I think it's just Facebook and Instagram are the two key ones that we use. Um, you can keep up with the activities that we have going on. Um, new discoveries like the bogs and the tree frogs, um, events that we have, uh, we'll do sometimes hikes, um, kayak, uh, events where we'll paddle through the gorge. Um, we will do, uh, educational projects or not projects, but, um, um, educational trips out into the gorge. Yeah. Um, like naturalist walks and things like that. Uh, but I think mainly looking at, uh, our 
social media pages would be the best way to do it through Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. And then the newsletter, if you sign up for that, and again, we don't, we don't blitz you with stuff. We're just not a big emailer. We'll do some emails, yeah. but it's usually to let you know, we've got something special going on. It's not a lot of, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. So I've told our staff, let's not be yeah filling people's boxes up with emails. So yeah. yeah I mean, we have, we have one special event a year called Another Gorgeous Evening, mm-hmm. uh, Gorge being the pun word. Yeah. Uh, and that's our, our our annual fundraiser. It's a, a blast. Really I've heard fun. good things. Yeah, real I'm gonna fun I'm going to try to go next year. Yeah, yeah, real fun event. There's usually about 350 to 400 people there. It's an outdoor, we call it Chattanooga's best outdoor uh, cocktail party. Yeah. And uh, a lot of young people there, which I really like. Uh, that was a big shift we tried to make. Uh, trying to make sure that we get young people engaged in what we're doing. Uh, we always have a big salute and a great respect for all the people of the past that have helped us, and we still uh, still have a great respect for all the folks that are uh, still with us over the decades. But we also know that we've got to stay focused on some of the young crowd and getting them engaged yeah. as well, which we have through the the gorgeous evening event. So if you're yeah. a young person that wants to get out and meet other young people that love the outdoors and conservation and want to mingle and mix with some of the older folks that have been around doing it for decades and working with the trust, it's a great place to come. Yeah. And for those of you listening, I'll, I'll link to all of the things that Rick is mentioning here in the show notes so that if you want to click through, you want to follow on social, you want to know more about another gorgeous evening, all of that stuff we can, we can link to just to make it easy for people to sort of find and access it because I think it's, it's well with your time. If you're, I'd say with you're within a couple of hours, like of here, of this physical location, you should, it's worth, it's worth checking out. Oh, yeah. Um, so Rick, as someone, I'm someone who tremendously enjoys the outdoors. Um, I'd say relatively inexperienced as it comes to like spending a lot of time outside, how do I, as I'm going out and hiking, camping, uh, mountain biking, how do I make sure that I'm doing my part to help sort of conserve the land? And what are, what would you say are the big do's and don'ts? And and the reason I, I think it's important to throw this out there is I think there sometimes tends to be a lack of awareness about, uh, about how do we take care of the land? Like what are the do's and don'ts if I'm going to go out camping, let's say, or I'm going to go out hiking. Um, how do I make sure that I am doing my part to help conserve and help give momentum to the work that you're already doing? I think one of the key things is read, um, before you go somewhere, are there rules and regulations? And I know none of us like rules and regulations, but a lot of times they're there for, for a reason. Yeah. It may not be that you're the person that's causing the problem, but your presence in that place does have an impact. And mm-hmm. even though it's small, you got to add that someone else comes the next day and does it. Someone else comes the next day and does it. And someone else comes the next day and so forth. Yeah. And then the impact starts to become greater. So when you think, well, that's just a little small impact. You got to think about that's one of many that's going to happen either yeah. today, tomorrow or the week in the month. Right. So it's reading and understanding when, when you, you might look at that rule and say, well, that's dumb. Yeah. But, when you really think about the totality of 
all of the people that are coming to these places, making sure that your small impact isn't a, a cumulative large impact. So read the signs, read the brochures, ask questions if there's a visitor center when you go to a place like a state park or anywhere, and ask what you just did. Is there any way I can lessen my impact out here? I'm, I'm really excited about being here, but where is it that you're having your greatest problem? And I want to be part of that, Yeah, that kind of a thing. And I think as far as your camping and things like that, again, is always keeping that mindset of just trying your best to leave. I, I don't think we can say we leave no impact anywhere we go, but to leave as less of an impact as you can. Just yeah. always being conscious about that. Um, you know, down to where you sit, you mm. know, if you sit there and someone else sits there and someone else sits there or you stop in an area to just, uh, this is something we've noticed lately is just stopping an area just to apply bug spray. Are you killing plants with the bug spray when you're doing it? Interesting. And like, you yeah. Get, yeah, we noticed that at our bird observatory, we have this beautiful moss growing on the ground. I looked down the other day and there was a bunch of brown spots. And then I noticed there were two little elongated green spots right in the middle of the ground spots, brown spots. And I said, that's people's footprints. That's where they're spraying their tick spray. Oh, yeah. You know, and it, you think about, so that's just one example of how if we do that at our own bird observatory to protect ourselves from tick bites, we've got to, and that's why I said to the staff is let's move out to the road where the dirt is and just stand in the dirt and do that yeah. because we're killing other plants, we're killing other insects, things like that. And it's the same for you. If you're getting out of your car at the trailhead and you're spraying yourself down with bug spray, be conscious of things like that. Yeah. Be conscious about where you sit, what you touch, all those kind of things, because you are having an impact. Yeah. Even though it's tiny, it's still an impact. Yeah. And, just and the cumulative is, yeah. is really what makes a big difference. That's it. Yeah. You think what you did really wasn't a big deal, and it probably wasn't. But if it's you and someone else and someone else, it, it starts to make an impact. And that's, it's staying on the trails. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to get off the trails and I, I don't love trails. I like to just wander, as I said at the beginning of the show, untrammeled. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like to just go. And I think there are places you can do that, mm -hmm. but that's more on like private property sure. where you don't have that cumulative effect that's happening all yep. the time. Yep. But if you're in a state park, you're in a national park, a national wildlife refuge, a national forest, um, be cognizant of that when you step when you step off that trail. Did you do it, and is someone else going to do it? And then all of a sudden, is there a new, a new goat path that's been exactly? Yeah, and you been, see those sometimes yeah, when you're when you're it. walking around. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's gone to an area that the the staff really doesn't want you going because it's causing an impact that doesn't need to be impacted. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it, as just an en enjoyer of the outdoors, you you may not always be cognizant of the fact that there is strategy and how the trails were built. Yeah. And that's not something that you would maybe cognizantly know. It's like, yeah. hey, th there were other things taken into consideration than just like, how do we get a good view or how do we yeah. get from here to here? It's how do we get from here to here safely with as little impact to yeah. the wildlife around this trail, but right. also provide access to yeah. Things that are representative of the whole. Yeah, we're building a trail right now on a piece of property we just had donated to us, which Tower Community is seriously supporting us in this process. Yeah. It's a mountain bike trail off of uh, Etna Mountain um, in the Black Creek subdivision area. It was a 300-acre property, and we flagged off a trail, and then in, as spring came, and they got in there to start doing the – to build the trail – 
we started noticing there were large flowered skull cap that were starting to bloom in some of the areas where we had planned the trail. So we uh, have to edit the trail just a little bit to sort of circumvent around those things. And then if you get off that trail, then you may be getting on the large flowered skull cap, which is an endangered species. Yeah. And, and it does grow there. Yeah. We also noted while we were there, again, just those thoughts about that, thinking about the past too, uh, we found uh, what were some sacred uh, Native American stone piles. Oh, wow. Uh, don't know the significance of sure, them, yeah. but we had to edit the trail a little bit to go around those kind of things. And then there's another example that if you were to get off the trail or to say, hey, we need to maintain this trail. Oh, there's a pile of rocks. Let's grab those and throw them over here on the trail. So it's it's things like that that yeah. you start to have an impact on that you don't really even know that you're having that impact yeah. on, if that, may, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. And I'm glad we're talking about this because I do think that – um, not always, but I think a lot of times it's people are well-intentioned that do enjoy the outdoors and they do want to take care of it. Yeah. Um, I, I, at least I love to give people the benefit of the doubt in I that way. Too. And, um, that if they are an enjoyer of the outdoors, if they're making mistakes, it's probably that they haven't learned that right. no one's told them or they saw someone else do it and thought it was okay because they saw yeah. someone else do it. Mm-hmm. But having these conversations, I think is a great way to just start to open awareness and yeah. to help people understand the maybe unforeseen impacts of what they feel like is a small impact, but that yeah. over thousands of repetitions becomes very harmful. Yeah. And think, it, think about all those people you pass on the trail when you're hiking, when you're hiking on a trail, a busy trail. Yeah. And you think about that little impact that you made and then all those people you just passed. Sometimes it's a hundred people on a busy trail Yeah, and they're all doing that same impact. Yeah. And that, that's what I'm trying to get across. Yeah. 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 I, th- I think you said it really well. Rick, what are you excited about as it comes to the the River Gorge Trust right now? Are, are there things on your radar that, that you're just really pumped about seeing through this year, next year? Yeah, we're going to be building a new office this year. We've been around for almost 43 years. This November will be 43 years or 40, that'll be 42. Yeah, 42 years. Get my math right. Um, <laughs> but the bottom line is we've been renting office space for 42 years and uh, it's time to not be renting office space anymore. That's really exciting. Yeah, so we're working on uh, a land exchange with uh, Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation uh, where we're going to help them with the Cumberland Trail, and then in return they're going to exchange a uh, small piece of property to us uh, down by the river that we can build an office on in the gorge. Um, And uh, real excited about that. That's going to be a big project. I figure – it's going to be probably early 2024 before we're into that office at sure. this point. But uh, very excited about that to have a permanent home and a campus for us for the future. Um, we're real excited still about these um, mountain bogs and what we're finding and discovering yeah. every day in those. Um, and then the access projects like the mountain bike trails and continuing to expand on those and find ways to keep people engaged. Um, we're working hard on that aspect of going back to the E.O. Wilson quote about art and science is, you know, knowing that we have the responsibility of the science and the reductionism, but it's making sure that we're connecting to the people to know that what, what they have out there is available to them and accessible to them. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's really important because if people don't know it's there, they, one, they may, circumvent it unintentionally yeah. because they don't know it. It's there and yeah. available. And two, they may just, if they're unaware, they may not have the chance to enjoy it. And yeah. what a shame to be so close and not be able to enjoy some right. of the magnificence that's here. Yeah. So I think yeah. those are, those are really 
exciting and respectable things that that you've got going on. Rick, I'm I'm also curious for if there's someone who's listening, maybe lives in another part of the country mm-hmm. that wants to take on a similar project. How do how do you you know we're we're talking what forty years ago that this yeah. project you know initially started. Yeah. And I'm guessing it's not the only project like this, but if there is someone who wants to take on a similar project, how do they even go about getting started in something like this? And it's a good question too. I think the first place I would start if you're passionate about something that you think needs to be protected is see if there are others who are already working on it. Because a lot of times there are organizations out there, it could be the federal government, the state government, all the way down to your non-governmental organizations and nonprofits like us that already have that same idea, that are focused in on that same place. Um, And if they are getting yourself engaged with them, if no one at all is interested or has shown a a focus on protecting something like that. I would also probably start with that first because to start a nonprofit takes a lot of infrastructure, cost and money. And if there are groups out there that can do what it is that you want to protect something, I would try to bring it to their attention first. Yeah. Um, I would start at the higher levels with your state uh, organ, your state uh, groups like Tennessee department of environment conservation, or uh, your federal groups like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, National Park Service, Forest Service, you're probably not going to get them to get too engaged in it, but think you might. But then working with groups like the Nature Conservancy, um, the Conservation Fund, uh, then group getting on down, those are the larger uh, corporate sort of nonprofit conservation organizations. And then working into your state level groups like the Land Trust for Tennessee, they're great partners of ours and colleagues of ours. We really love working with them. Um, the Tennessee River Gorge Trust, uh, there's all kinds of organizations just like those across the state of Tennessee that probably Tennessee Green's another one out of Nashville. That's yeah. another good organization. Yeah. Um, they're probably already aware of the spot that you're passionate about and probably could use your support as well in that process. Mm -hmm. But if it comes down to there's absolutely no one and no one interested, um, then it's a matter of starting at the grassroots level with your community because you're going to need support. It takes money. It takes a lot of money to do this work, um, to protect it one to buy it and that's step one in the infinite number of steps that it takes to protect something yeah it's like having a child it doesn't end once yeah. the child's born yeah yeah, yeah. And, and it just keeps going and going it's the same thing mm. and you have to prepare for the future you've got to be prepared for the finances of the future all of those things exactly that's a great analogy is looking at it once you've bought it to protect it that's the first step and then there's yeah. many more that come after that and and you got to keep thinking and planning for that yeah. It's, it's pretty complex. Yeah. Is what it you're is. saying. It yeah. Is. It's yeah. complex. It takes people and, and you can, you can live off passion for a while, but it still takes, it takes money to do it. it and significant amounts if, if you want to have a pretty yeah. large impact, mm-hmm. which is why what you all have done is, is really impressive. What do you look back? You, you've been at the Tennessee River Gorge Trust for 10 years now. Is mm-hmm. that, is that right? Yeah. What do you look back and, and really just feel proud about? I think our work with carbon markets is something that I'm very proud of with carbon offset markets. Um, when I came on board 10 years ago, uh, again, I looked at the what we had in the bank. I looked at uh, what we were bringing in. 
and we were in good shape, but not good enough to maintain us into the future. I didn't feel like, and I thought selling dinner plates at special events and sending out envelopes in December at the end of the year for donations is just not going to sustain us. So I started looking at, well, what do we have that we can use as an asset to bring in some income for us, but not go against our mission and purpose as an mm-hmm. organization. And and what I saw was our trees, but not from the standpoint of harvesting those trees. Mm-hmm. It was the carbon markets where you get rewarded for doing a good job of protecting the trees, which uh-huh. are taking in carbon dioxide every day. Um, and then converting that into sugars, which is the growth rings that you see in a tree. And that's what's called sequestered carbon. So the trees take in carbon at night, they photosynthesize right now during the day. They convert all that that carbon dioxide into those sugars, and that becomes that sequestered carbon that yeah. you can be rewarded for. So we we entered into the California market uh, back in 2015, I believe is when we brought it to full fruition, um, and that brought us in $2.1 million in one day. Wow. Uh, to put our 5,000 acres of our forest in the car, the California carbon market. Wow. But I also saw that that market was shrinking because California started saying, well, we don't really want as many projects coming from outside the state as we do from inside the state. Sure. So they started restricting where you could develop projects. And that led me to start um, uh, working with some other members in the community, uh, a young woman by the name of Anjali Underwood, who I really enjoy working with. And we started working on an idea to create the Appalachian Carbon Exchange. And oh, wow. that is out there now. We've done our yeah. first project and that's a voluntary market. So if, if our market was closing that we were going to sell into in the future, we decided to create a new market. And we've done that through the Appalachian Carbon Exchange. We're working on our second cohort project right now. Um, and that's that first project has put um almost six million dollars into the it was four other conservation nonprofits put their forest in the voluntary market and that that project when it finally pays out uh which will start paying out later this year maybe early 2024 uh will be about six million dollars over the next uh 20 years to these conservation nonprofits that's pretty phenomenal yeah so i'm real proud of that uh that's been um, because money's hard to raise and that's been a very, it is very proud accomplishment to bring in those kind of dollars. Uh, we brought in over 3 million in the last seven years on, uh, the California market. That's Total phenomenal. 3 million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Yeah. Rick, how do you, I guess, how would you describe the impact that you hope to make? So kind of on a more personal note, thinking about sort of your career and, and where you are now, um, if I were to just ask you what, what impact do you hope to make with your work? What, what would you say? You know, I hope, cause I've, I've been doing this 37 years. I'll do it a few more and then I'm probably going to go to the house. Yeah. Uh, and I would hope that the impact is on the young people more than anything, because that's the future of carrying it on. We yeah. all have our passions. We all do what we do every day. We all make an impact. Um, I feel like I have made an impact. I hope that I've made an impact, and I hope I've moved the needle. But more than anything, I hope that I move the needle towards getting more young people more interested. And that's been my focus these last 10 years is really working hard to encourage young people 
to get involved in this because I know they'll do it mm-hmm. and I know they'll do well and I know they'll do great things. Um, they'll do things differently than I did and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, because it needs to change and it needs to evolve. The, the science of it needs to be constantly changing. But I hope that when I go to the front porch, there's a, a stacked up, train of people right behind me with great ideas doing the yeah. same the same thing that I was doing trying to do good for uh conservation in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think I think we're we're building that. I yeah. think we have a, a younger generation now that does significantly care about the environment, I think yeah. as a general rule, which is which is great to see and people trying to find ways to plug in and get involved. For someone who is on the, you know, maybe the front end of their career, they're just getting started and they're, they know they want to make an impact, but they're not really sure how to get started. What advice would you give them? Um, talk to people like me uh, and the young people that I'm working with right now. Um, just what you would call an informational interview, um, sort of like a job interview, but it's not. You just contact and, and people that do what we do are so passionate. We will stop to do that. You reach out to people like me and say, could I come in and just talk to you and learn more about what you do? Yeah. Kind of like what we're doing right now, just yeah. this talk back and forth. It will help you learn how to do an interview better later because you'll be more articulate from that, that yeah. informational interview that you do. Um, it also gives you a connection to people who are working in the field that can help you with internships. We have three interns right now this year uh, with us, two from, no, one from UTC, one from Austin P, and the other one from Tennessee Tech. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's getting your, your face in front of people yeah. and learning more about what the job entails because you may find it isn't what you're interested in. Right. That's uh, true. But you may find that, you're interested in something that you didn't even know you were interested in after talking with people in the yeah. field. So I would say do that. If you're in high school, definitely do that. Try to find ways to volunteer and then try to find a good school. And there are plenty of them out there uh, with degrees in wildlife management, wildlife biology, environmental science. Uh, those are all good fields to go into. Um, get you an education, but while you're getting educated, work on that internship and find yeah. that internship and find one that pays. Yeah. There's a lot of internships that don't pay. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree <laughs> that's with called that. volunteering. That's yes, not volunteering. Yeah. 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 yeah that, but, that, that's great advice, yeah. Rick. Yeah. But do that and, um, just keep in contact with people. Um, and you know, we've got, like I said, I've even got young people in their twenties that are working with us that would be glad to sit down and do information. Because I mean, if you're 18 years old to 24 years old, Talking to a guy like me, it's like talking to your dad. You don't really want to do a whole lot of that. You want to talk to young people, too, and see what they're thinking and how they got into it. But also talk to people like me to find some of that wisdom that I have to share from what I've learned over the years. Um, And and people like me have contacts with other people in the field that might be able to lead you in a direction for a job or an internship or something. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. If people do want to reach out to you, Rick, where's the, is the, is the website the best place to kind of get in touch? Yeah. TRGT.org. Uh, cool. That's the best place to go. And it's a good website. I got young people that do that too. Yeah. And uh, we've got a great, I feel like it's a great website. Um, yeah. Very interactive website. Lots of video content as well as written content. And uh, we have a YouTube channel as well, where you can see some of the other work that we do out in the field. Uh, so yeah, just get engaged with all that stuff. 
Perfect. And I'll be sure if you're listening and you are interested, uh, check the show notes. You can click right through. I'll, I'll grab everything that Rick mentioned in the interview and make sure that we've got the links in there. Yeah. So Rick, thank you for the time today. Yeah, you're you're welcome. doing some phenomenal work and thank it's you. exciting. I know for us uh, at tower, we're thrilled about being able to support you and see your continued success. So yeah. it's a real honor to be able to chat today. Well, same here. And we appreciate the support that you guys give us. And, uh, and we've got a great crew there at the trust and a great board of directors. And that's what makes the organization. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else that you want to share while we're, while we're together today? No, I'm good. Thank All you. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon then, Rick. Thanks for the time. Yep. All right. Bye. And that's a wrap. Rick Huffines, everyone. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show and for taking the time to help educate us all a little bit further on conservation and on the great work that you're doing in the Tennessee River Gorge. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, do me a huge favor and either press the five star button or leave us a quick review. It only takes a few seconds to do and it makes a huge difference in other people's ability to discover our show and join our community. Big thanks again to our sponsor, Tower Community Bank, for making the show possible. If you did enjoy today's episode, another great way to support us is by heading over to www.towercommunitybank.com. Check out the accounts there. Check out the specials that we have going on. And if you see something of interest to you, reach out. That's all for today. Take care, be well, and we'll see you back here next time for another episode of The Impact Code. Bye. (laughs) 